0: footfall. In Napoli, I had to learn to walk all over again. I fell down twice as soon as I got there. Yeah. Boom. Down. Faccia pietra. Yeah, and Rome too. It might be a syndrome. Who knows? Fall to the ground in the motherland. La madre terra sulla faccia caduto. They say kiss the ground when you arrive home. Kiss the stone. bacio la pietra. I did more than that. I wasn't in Spachinopoli five minutes, cinque minuti, before I came faccia faccia with the San Pietrini, the smooth black basalt cobblestones, the signature of these ancient streets. I fell, and not just to my hands and knees either, but all the way down, guancha guancha, cheek to cheek, with the gorgeous, smooth, onyx-colored Basalt, slippery as hell when wet, strong, historically quarried from the lava fields. San Pietrini, arch up to meet the footfall. Each serci, the individual stones, are beveled with facets and smoothed over by time. Black, cool basalt meniscus rises into the arch of the foot if your foot lands just right. Some of the San Pietrini have been in use uh, 500 years and more. Serci were hewn from larger stones which paved the streets of ancient Rome, the Roman Empire, 2,000 years ago. Many a fast-footed New Yorker, believe me, gets a toe caught in a rut between two serci. The old stones are tooth-shaped, curved on top and narrowing toward the root of the stone, set into a base of sand and earth, sometimes gravel. So San Pietrini settle and move with the earth, with the cars and vespers, with the rain, with the centuries upon centuries of pounding feet. Rain leaps in patterns between them, for no two serci ever meet, and no two are exactly alike. The spaces in between form patterns, smiles, sweeping arcs, checkerboards. Rain bounces up from the black as surface and runs in the interserci spaces, finally settling into the sand beneath the street, and absorbing back into earth. A workforce of specialists, the Serciaroli, rhythmically tap their brick hammers, adjusting and replacing stone by precious stone, serci by serci, tooth by tooth, setting new stones where old ones were uprooted and thrown as projectiles in street uprisings. Only these serciaroli and children who create street games and the fallen, like me, with bad knees, get faccia, faccia, Guancia Guancia with the San Pietrini. I fall. I fall down. I fall down hard. I fall all the way down. And in the rain, San Pietrini are treacherous. So in the rain, I stand still. And there's nothing I've learned to love better than to stand still for hours under an awning in a thunderstorm, on a curved corner in Trastevere, blissing out, watching San Pietrini turn rainwater into rivulets and glorious shining ribbons, arcs of motion. At night in the rain, it's like standing in the black ocean, Street light slaps a patina on each cheek of the Sarchi, like moonlight gilds the tip of waves. The blinking lights of shops and cars flash, white, blue, red, gold, green, skittering across the wet stones as tires kick the water up. To navigate the San Pietrini's curves and ruts, I had to learn to walk all over again, to walk on stones. A new canter I needed to get the New York sidewalk out of my Bronx legs and get my Spockinopoly gate on. In my Bronx, sidewalk squares take one of my strides. My footfall lands in the center of one square, then just over the line of the next square, and so on. The city flattened the earth, or tried to. In Manhattan, they leveled as much of the grid as they could. You can walk most Manhattan sidewalks without a hitch, set a pace, and forget about it move swiftly across the cement and asphalt without trouble. In the Bronx and Brooklyn, you got to keep an eye out for cement squares lifted by tree roots. But they went to great pains to flatten the earth and cover it with concrete. In Napoli, they built right into the mountain. They didn't level the mountain, they built into the mountain. The earth, of course, is dynamic, moving, and laughs at the human illusion of cement, concrete, asphalt. Cement cracks and keeps workmen in business. Asphalt gives into sinkholes. <laughs> you could just be swallowed up by the street. San Pietrini adjust, respond to the earth, lest are eternal. In Napoli I had to slow it way down. Camina, Camina, Yamo Yamo Yam I changed the arc my legs inscribed from hip flexes and knees. I slowed down my steps. I moved my foot heel to toe with a slight kick and pause at the apex of the step before bringing the heel down on the center of the next stone. It's a different way of walking than on New York sidewalk. In physics, you might call this point the apogee. The foot is going up, the foot is coming down. That point in space-time where direction changes, gravity takes hold, the suspension in air of the foot before the heel comes down to find the next stone. I had some days walking in Napoli with historian Stan Pugliese and his wife, poet Jennifer Romanello. I'd noticed Stan walking this way, just like Michael Corleone in The Godfather too. when Michael goes back to get Kay, and she's with her school kids, and they walk, the two of them. And Michael walks slow, heel to toe, like he's still in Sicilia, on uneven ground, even his gaze sweeps the street as they walk. Corleone, kicks up on the upswing of the foot, then pauses before the heel begins its descent. This is the only way to walk on San Pietrini. Pacino's walk was a precise study. His artist's eye, sharp as da Vinci. When I walked with Stan and Jennifer, I could take one of their arms. Now, what I learned is, walking arm in arm, as it turns out, is as practical a modo di vivere, a way of living, as it is affectionate and full of style it kept me upright. And it's nice to walk next to someone, you know, you could walk with at the same pace, next to a canto a. It's a beautiful thing and necessary on San Pietrini to stay upright. In the months traveling alone, all by myself, without somebody's arm to link into mine, and after I'd fallen a second and third time, I decided it was time to search for a baston, a walking stick. So one afternoon in Rome, I went to see for myself this museum that Stan told me about because he wrote a book about it. It's the Museo Storico della Liberazione, the History Museum of Liberation, the old headquarters of Nazi torture during World War Two, that Via Tasso, one forty-five to one fifty-five, which from the outside looks like any other sturdy apartment building, a classic Roman pale ochre facade, five stories tall. Stan gave me the tip to go there. His book was called. Desperate Inscriptions, Graffiti from the Nazi Prison in Rome, 1943 to 1944. He wrote about the prisoners' etchings, scratches, and graffiti on the prison cell walls. Scratchings, etchings, scar the walls I saw for myself, made by resistance fighters who were imprisoned, tortured, murdered by the Gestapo when the Nazis occupied Rome. Kitchens converted into prison cells, windows bricked over, carvings on the walls. The cross, the word attenti, with an image of a rabbit with big ears. The question remains to this day. Who was the trader known as the rabbit? Beware of rabbit. Whose street name was rabbit? Whose sopranome? A calendar in the shape of ladders, each week counting seven rungs. The struggle to keep track of time, to keep oriented through interrogation, torture, imminent death. condenato a morte, condemned to death, one scratching wrote. To keep moored by counting giorni e note giorni e note days and nights, days and nights, and some were loud and emphatic, scratched shouts, death is ugly to those who fear it. Italy, rise again. When I walked out of there and back into daylight, I was unsteady on my legs. I leaned against the building across the street. You know, poets take everything in. I mean, that's our job, being porous to detail, to energy, to what's unspoken to breathe in the still life of a moment and render it in syllables. As I left Via Tasso, I knew it was time to buy a bastone. I felt unsteady. I needed a walking stick. I didn't have an arm to link onto. I needed a stick. Finally, I walked by a pharmacy, so I went inside. Now, pharmacists in Italy, you got to understand, are very helpful. They're comprehensive. I mean, they'll talk to you and solve whatever problem you got. So I asked the pharmacist for a bastone. But the pharmacist had them put away in the back storage room, and I wondered, why weren't they on display? I mean, everything else seemed like it was on display. I wanted to look at a variety and choose, you know, hold a few, see how they felt in my hand, how heavy they were, whatever. But the pharmacist had them put away, so I had to stand there and describe what it was I was looking for. So I told him my problem. Volio un bastone, nero, perché sono caduto nella via... I told him I wanted a black baston because I fell down in the street. The pharmacist raised an eyebrow, looked at my knees. I was wearing shorts. I could see he was making a needs assessment. Then he disappeared into the back behind the door. I pictured him having to rustle through boxes. I mean, he was gone long enough, so I knew I had put him through some measure of trouble. He came back with a cane with a tripod foot, a flexible base that adjusted to the landing like a foot with an ankle joint. But I wasn't really ready for that. I mean, I wanted something with style, panache, you know, as if I was carrying it for a different purpose, like a poet's purpose, you know. I didn't want to feel more broken than I already was, more beyond repair. I wanted a little graceful help, that's all, in lieu of an arm to link onto. No, grazie, I told him. Un baston semplice, nero, semplice. I pictured a classic black baston with a bronze handle, something suave, like an old Italian man would use, a gentleman, a signore. Or, on the other hand, something powerful, like a tall walking stick, like a shillelagh. Something with spirit, something a cantastoria would carry into the piazza. Either style or power, or meaning. That's what I would buy. And believe me, it's impossible being a consumer if you're looking for meaning. You can't shop for meaning, but I do. Back home in New York, I walked with a branch that I'd carved from my grandmother's peach tree. That held ancestral power. That's what I'm talking about. Plus, it held a story. The pharmacist went in the back and disappeared for a while longer. He came back holding a gray walker, four legs with two wheels. No, no. I shook my head. Simplice, simplice, per favore, classico, classico. With my limited vocabulary, I tended to say everything two times for emphasis to make sure I was understood. I stood there visualizing exactly what it was I wanted and described it to him with miming gestures for effect. Then I realized, you know, in the old part of Rome, Il Centro, the center, I hadn't seen one old man walking around with a proper baston. Why is this? Where were they? I'd seen a couple of people with injuries that they have crutches that buckled up around their bicep. And I saw a tourist with two ski pole type hiking sticks, but I didn't see one old man with an old fashioned proper baston. Where were all the classy old men in the old part of Rome with their suave baston? I looked at the pharmacist and just said, devo penso prima di decidi. You know, like, I got to think before I decide what to buy. And I walked back out onto the street. I continued on my way, and it hit me. Ah, the San Pietrini, the San Pietrini. A regular baston or a cane would get stuck in the space between stones. A cane is a liability in El Centro. I'd be sure to fall down again and again. I could crack my head. Canes, high heels in El Centro, these are liabilities. Come on. That's why the pharmacist was pushing the tripod foot. He knew. He figured if I was sightseeing in El Centro, that's the safest way. Ah, he was right. I should have gave in. I should have listened. Instead, I walked and walked. Come in, come in, yam, 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 Oh, amonim, amonim, let's go. Shamanim, shamanim. I came upon the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore. Now, I remembered going there decades ago, but coming up from the back, up that long grand staircase when it was open, this time I approached from the front. I was tired. I just wanted to sit down somewhere cool. I was also hungry for connection and conversation. You know, traveling alone, there's a point in the day when I just needed to talk with somebody, anybody. I don't even care who. I just need a conversation. I sat down, I leaned my head back against a marble pillar, and I stared up into the gold-quilted ceiling, and I breathed in that cool frankincensed air. Confessional booths lined the wall on the right. There was over a dozen of them, with a little red light that indicated on, meaning a priest was inside. It was the confession hour. (laughs) Each booth had the name of a language posted over the door. I mean, you could confess in any language you want, I said to myself, you know what, you haven't spoken English with a native speaker in a long time. Really, it's been, I don't know, six, seven weeks. It's been months. So, why not just go confess in English? What the hell? I headed for the English confessional, hopeful that I'd have an easy and deep conversation. I stepped up and pulled the curtain aside. A priest was sitting inside the booth. He was old with a pruned face and like a rancid expression. He spoke with a British accent. Immediately our interaction turned sour. He asks me, Are you chaste? Why is this old fuck ask? Excuse me. Why is this old creep asking me that for? Haven't I suffered enough? I've been too goddamn chaste. Asshole, que stronsa. I didn't punch him. Chaste? Who even uses that word? Forget English. Who needs to speak English? This is the kind of word in English I got to hear? When was the last time I ever heard that word? Did I even ever hear somebody use that word? Who even wants to speak English? I don't care if I never hear English again as long as I live. I don't. It's full of ugly, hard consonants like bricks of the imperial oppressor. I don't think I ever heard that word come out of anybody's mouth in my life. Maybe I just read it in the Old Testament? Who knows? Maybe a nun or a priest in my youth used that word. It's possible. It's probable. You know what? Thank God the pharmacist didn't sell me a bathstone. I might have cracked this creep priest over the head with it. Then I'd have a bigger problem. I'd go straight from confession to be coming a prigioniera, where I'd scratch messages into the walls. This creep priest didn't know nothing about my life and right away he inquires about my pussy. You gotta be kidding me. The church wants to control my pussy. Who walks into a church to discuss my pussy? That's not why I'm here, that's my pussy. I didn't walk into a church to discuss my pussy. Come on, my Funkle. At the time, I wasn't getting any action, so I answered him, basically, and he says, "Well, thank God for that." <sighs> this isn't why I came to confession. I came to confession because I want that clean, swept feeling I used to get as a kid, that lift, that spiritual renewal to feel forgiven for whatever weighs on your conscience, that chewing bubblegum on the walk home feeling. I pushed on. I confided in that old creep priest what weighed on my mind, figured let him do his job, let him absolve me and take it away. What was heavy on my conscience walking through Italy, I mean where my mother sat on my shoulder every step of the way, as did all my ancestors, especially my grandmothers, Thinking of them as impoverished little girls who left all they knew behind for the shaky ocean of unknown. I told the creep priest confessor this. I'd cared for my mother these past years. I lived with her the last nine years of her life. And she died with my arms around her and my voice whispering in her ear. But it weighed on me still how disrespectful I'd been through the years, as a youth and on up. I had a bad mouth. And she was my one and only mother, my real guardian angel. I mean, the one person who was there for me throughout every single thing in my life. The one person, the only person who never turned her back on me. The one who did everything for me that I may have a life and survive the illnesses that came. And the one who held a wet cloth to my forehead and the back of my neck through every fever. And the pain she wore on her face when I spoke at her with disrespect. Do you go to mass every Sunday? He pointed his question at me like a spear. No, I said, I don't. I can't sit through a mass run by a man. I can never get through a whole mass run by a man. I get panicked when a man's in control. Once I ran out of a sweat lodge in Alaska. They opened the door to throw water onto the hot stones. I got up and shot out of there into the cold open air. The priest told me to say some Hail Marys and start going to church every Sunday. And I ran the hell out of there, more shaky than when I walked in. I felt like he bashed me in the gut. How dare he? And in this gorgeous basilica, dedicated to the Blessed Mother, how dare these men destroy her all-encompassing healing spirit, or try to? And on this spot, the spot of the ancient Roman temple to Juno. Get the hell out of here. The heel of my foot had to find a stone, a stone I could center my foot on so my toe could land, and the next, and the next. I walked to Piazza Navona. The water pressure was so low, the fountains looked like the gods were dribbling from their lips. This guy stood in the middle of the piazza, making thousands of big bubbles by dipping a net on a pole into a vat of soapy water and sweeping it across the air. This bubble artist sent bubbles floating over all the children's heads, and the kids ran chasing the bubbles as they went up, 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 and on their way. And he saved the energy of the piazza, where there was no water pressure. The bubbles stole the show. I met a friend for café, and I told her what happened to me in the church. (laughs) And she laughed, waving her hand in the air at me, saying, What did you expect going over there to those old conservative pezzi di merde?" Ma dai, cosa stavi pensando? What were you thinking? That's the last place you'll find benevolence or compassion. (laughs) And we had a good laugh. A few days later, I finally found my baston, the baston of my dreams a baston full of both meaning and power, and stories. I went to see an old friend of mine who lived in Brooklyn for decades on a street called Verona, and then finally moved back to her ancestral land, just north of Rome. Painter Rita Passeri, beautiful painter. She took barn doors and painted portraits of women. My favorite was one of her grandmother, with her grandmother's hold her chicken by the feet, and you could see the stern look of Sopra of survival on her face. We were sitting in her painting studio, and I must have been telling her about, you know, falling down on the San Pietrini. And she had a bunch of sticks in the corner that figured into her paintings. They were beautiful wood, who knows where from, maybe from the beach or from collecting in the forest. All these pieces of wood had great character. So she pulled one out and offered it to me. She said, here, would you like this one? Wow. This was a very old carved piece of hardwood. On top, it was gnawed like, like a knee bone. At the bottom, it's cleaved like a hoof. And it's held together with a circle of old thick wire that someone had twisted tight. Clearly, this stone had a life on a farm. I mean, it had a lot of miles on it. You could just feel it. Overall, it looks like the tall bone of an animal, like the tibia of a giraffe. Now, whenever anyone in the north of Italy hears that I'm going to Bari to see my cousins, they repeat with a smirk, a berry. They say it like a goat, bleeding the vowels. You're going to a via by as if I were going to some long-lost land where people lived in caves and walked with big sticks out of the fields. So when I left to see my cousins, I was at the Fumicino Airport in Roma, and I was going through security. So the airport security man asks to take my bastone because I'm walking with it because my knee hurts. And he puts on a Barre's accent, and he asks me, Ma che cosa fa con questo up barretto? and he laughs and laughs. You know, what are you going to do with this in body? He turns it upside down and all around, and he examines all the edges, taps on it, turns it every which way, checks to see if the hoof screws off, as if I concealed something hidden inside the shank. He makes sure it's not hollow, like, like it's hiding a rapier. I mean, it is as long as a scabbard. I guess, theoretically, you could hide a nice sword in there. He shows it to his colleague. They're both laughing that I'm carrying this baston. And I'm laughing seeing these two men in uniform examining this old peasant stick, the bottom of which looks just like a hoof. You don't see things like this in the modern aesthetic of the airport. There's not even faucets in the bathrooms anymore. You just wave your hand under a white underlit counter to trigger soap, water, then a blast of hot air. So when the security guard's done with his physical examination, he instructs me to put the bastone on the x-ray belt. And I watched as my bastone moved down the conveyor belt in through the x-ray. As expected, it was solid wood. And the guard let me board the plane walking with it. Off I went to body in my Hawaiian shirt and my tan pants with an applique of pink roses with my bastone di terone back to Paese Mio. A month later, after visiting the cousins in Body, I was back again in New York. I got back just in time for the Feast of San Gennaro. Down Mulberry Street I walked, as if I were walking in Napoli, foot by foot, rising to a pause before falling again to find the next San Pietrini. I walked Mulberry Street as if I were back in Piazza Bellini in Napoli, walking down that curved alley, To Piazza Luigi Miraglia to get a little breathing room and to duck out of the smoke from the sausages and the cigars. I stepped behind the stalls and walked on the sidewalk. It was early evening. There were people standing in the doorways. As I walked, I could feel someone walking behind me, fast. I sensed her coming up behind me at a speed that surpassed my own. Now, I was walking at Monopoly pace. I refused to sidestep into garbage cans. To move out of her way. I mean, this was a Neapolitan feast after all. San Gennaro is the consummate Napolitana saint. Suddenly, this young woman pushes right into me to pass me. Now, she could have found a way around me. She could have waited till we passed the garbage pails and there was an indentation with more room to pass and she could have swerved around. But no, this she doesn't do. This American girl, La Merigana. She walks into me, forcefully, just hitting me from behind. <laughs> I say to her, but where do you think I'm going to go? Where am I supposed to put my body? You're just walking too slow. She sneers, and her long brown hair swishes with a big shine on it as she rushes forward ahead of me. No, I say, no. I'm walking as if I'm Monopoly. This disarms her, and she laughs. Yes, she says, that's true and she turns her head and smiles and walks on waving. And I continued on my way, walking slow down Mulberry Street, as if I'm in Spacanopoli. And this is how I aspire to walk from now on, as if I'm in Napoli or Roma, my foot stopping before footfall. My foot swings up, suspends, falls back to find the earth. Thank you for coming to Annie's Story Cave. This has been a Street Cry Inc. production. Way! Hey, street Cry!